Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. First of all, I'd like to thank Theodore for arranging this. And um, every time I come here, um, I feel like I'm hanging out in someone's living room. Your living room. If we had some communal living room, this would be it. And, um, um, And I'd like to dedicate the talk tonight uh, also um, to David Foster Wallace, who passed away in September of this past year. And um, I'm going to draw on a commencement speech that David Foster Wallace gave just before his death uh, at Kenyon College, which is a liberal arts college in Ohio. And um, Sarah Selecki, one of the finest writing teachers in Toronto, um, is uh, going to channel David Foster Wallace by um, punctuating uh, what I'm going to be speaking about uh, with excerpts from the commencement speech that he gave. Um, when Theodore asked if I would talk about uh, stories of healing and transformation, the first thing that came to my mind is sort of the archetypal or universal or patterned way of uh, giving a talk on this subject which is to go through all the great stories of awakening, all the wonderful stories that we can read about, the, the uh, impersonal stories, the personal stories, Dogen's dropping away of body and mind, Shantideva's experience, and you know the Buddha's enlightenment, and so on. And uh, this was my idea for the talk up until yesterday. And then yesterday, what occurred to me is it might be more interesting, rather than going through um, stories of people's uh, transformations, to just talk about what it means to have a story, and what it means to tell a story, and the way that um, transformation happens in the way that we construct the stories we have uh, about ourselves, about the world, and about experience. And so... What's interesting about uh, stories is that they are sort of the guiding metaphors for the way that we live. And many of our stories are uh, cultural stories that are fairly unconscious. You know, there's a way to do woman. There's a way to do mother. There's a way to do nuclear family. There's a way to do dentist, you know. 
And these stories sort of operate in the background and for the most part um, cause suffering. Because when there are stories that are operating through us that uh, have momentum and that are unseen, um, we're just like puppets. And we're not conscious of uh, often the intentions we have. And one of the most powerful uh, teachings of the Dharma is that within any construction of a story, we always have a choice. We have a choice. We can shift. When you have a story that you're spinning about yourself, and when you have a story that you're constructing about somebody else, um, the way you tell a story uh, determines the way you're going to perceive that particular experience. And in a way, what meditation practice, contemplative practices, what inquiry, what questioning offers is a way of interrupting our viewpoint, interrupting or suspending the particular story we have about something or somebody. And I don't know about you, but you know, so many times I've caused so much damage in my life and in the lives of others just by framing people, by telling stories about them and believing in my viewpoint, my singular viewpoint, as the truth. So this is what I'd like to explore tonight, but we'll let David Foster Wallace speak via Sarah. So um, instead of offering you a short paragraph, just imagine we're at Kenyon College, Ohio, June, graduating class, and we're hearing a commencement speech. You can close your eyes and um, listen. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? If you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise old fish explaining what water is, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude, but the fact is that, in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. So let's get concrete. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it, 
right there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real, you get the idea. But please don't worry that I'm getting ready to preach to you about compassion or other directedness or the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural, hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. By way of example, let's say it's an average day and you get up in the morning go to your challenging job and you work hard for nine or ten hours and at the end of the day you're tired and you're stressed out and all you want to do is go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for a couple hours and then hit the rack early because you have to get up the next day and do it all again but then you remember there's no food at home you haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job and so now after work you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket it's the end of the work day and traffic's very bad so getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. And the store is hideously fluorescently lit and infused with soul-killing music or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be. But you just can't get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's crowded aisles to get the stuff you want. And you have, have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts. And of course, there are also the glacially slow old people, and the spacey people, and the kids who block the aisle. And you have to grit your teeth and try to be polite as you ask them to let you buy. And eventually, finally, you get all your supper supplies. Except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of day rush. So the checkout lane is in incredibly long which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your fury out on the frantic lady working the register. Anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and pay for your food and wait to get your check or card authenticated by a machine and then get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy, plastic bags of groceries in your cart through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot and try to load the bags in your car in such a way that everything doesn't fall out of the bags and roll around in the trunk on the way home. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush-hour traffic, etc., etc. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing comes in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to food shop, because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire just to get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem here in the checkout line, or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look how deeply unfair this is. I've worked really hard all day, and I'm starved and tired, and I can't even get home to eat and unwind because of all these stupid goddamn people. Or, if I'm in a more socially conscious form of my default setting, 
I can spend time in the end-of-day traffic jam being angry and disgusted at all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish, 40-gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles, driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers, who are usually talking on cell phones as they cut people off in order to just get 20 stupid feet ahead in the traffic jam. And I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate, and how spoiled and stupid and disgusting we all are, and how it all just sucks. If I choose to think this way, fine, lots of us do. Except that thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic, it doesn't have to be a choice. Thinking in this way is my natural default setting. It's the automatic, unconscious way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is, there are obviously different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible car accidents in the past and now find driving so traumatic that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or that the Hummer that just cut me off is maybe being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sick in the seat next to him, and he's trying to rush to the hospital, and he's in a much bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am. It is actually I who am in his way. When I was small, and I was 11 years old, um, I had very bad panic attacks. And so one day I uh, climbed onto the roof of my school, uh, after school, and I stayed up there uh, from after school until the evening, until I watched the sunset. And um, I remember being really high up over my neighborhood, looking out over the neighborhood, being um, torn apart by anxiety. And then as the sun was setting and I was looking out over the neighborhood worried, I had this realization that I could see all of my thoughts that were causing me to worry and that if I just shifted the way that I was telling myself how things were, then I wouldn't feel so anxious. It was like I saw that I was looking through a lens, and because of the way I was looking, I was causing anxiety for myself. Never seen this before. I had never noticed that it wasn't the world out there that was the problem, but actually the way that I was looking. And in a way, what David Foster Wallace is capturing here in his meditation on frustration is that your attitude about what you're noticing counts for everything. You can meet something with resistance. You can meet something with equanimity. You can meet something with anger. And you can meet something with kindness. But also, the something that you're meeting is you. Is you. 
the SUV, the Hummer, the grocery checkout clerk, that's all part of your body. And how you treat others is also how you treat yourself. How you see others is how you see yourself. Raising babies is raising yourself. So in a way we could say um, the ultimate freedom is not freedom from something, a freedom that's dependent on something. It's not freedom from your parents or your religion or your government or the prison system or taxes. Genuine freedom is the recognition that there's choice, that if your suffering is self-constructed, then it's self-deconstructed. In other words, it's up to you whether your moment-to-moment experience is going to be one of discontent and unsatisfactoriness, or if you can enter your life, enter the flow. And in a way, all these stories we rely on from personal narratives that create self-judgment or even from uh, the things that we worship, like um, often, you know, the stories our culture or our parents hand down to us. You know, these are stories that are consoling on some level because they seem to give us the facts about our lives. But actually, they shut something down in the process. And what they shut down is the fresh meeting of each situation, of each person, of each feeling, as that phenomena, as those phenomena arise. We're so quick to contextualize what we experience. We're so quick to meet people and decide about them. We're so quick to feel feelings and then decide which ones are acceptable and which ones are not. We have a feeling and, oh my God, I'm having a feeling. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're, um, I don't know, eating your ninth slice of pizza eating your feelings away, shopping your feelings away. Why? Because of a story. Because at some level, usually quite unconscious, we've made up our mind that this is acceptable and this is not acceptable. This is the condoning mind. And... um, When I was 11 and I was on top of my school with tremendous anxiety, I used to suffer from anxiety attacks for years. And um, I remember the, the breakthrough was this one experience when I realized that the anxiety had everything to do with the way that I was talking to myself about myself. 
It was like I was making the anxiety in the way that I was constructing the experience. But that I always thought it was everything else outside of me that caused my anxiety. Not these glasses that I was wearing. And it's hard to see the glasses that you're wearing. Because you've been wearing them for a long time. And really the habits that get you in trouble are the chronic ones. And anything that's chronic is usually pretty unconscious, if not totally unconscious. You forget you're wearing the glasses. But to remember that you're always wearing glasses. You're never free of glasses. But to be able to see the kind of glasses you're wearing is to be able to see the kind of story that you're telling, the way you're structuring your experience, to be able to shift, to be able to shift perspectives. Otherwise, it's exhausting because we create um, a me separate from the world. And then the world becomes threatening because other people might interrupt our stories. And then any possibility of intimacy, which is what we long for, becomes threatening. Because other people are going to um, um, fracture our viewpoint. Because other people don't want to be turned into the story you have for them. So it's actually easier at a superficial level to just go about making enemies. Because, oh, it's such a relief. It's like, oh, you know. You know what they are, and you don't like them. And in creating an enemy, you actually are creating a self. You're creating a me that's separate. And not only is this exhausting... And not only does this create separation in your family and in your community and with friends, and not only is it deeply unsatisfying, but it's addictive. It's addictive because it gives us a false kind of security. Security that my viewpoint, my singular perspective, is right. Has anybody here ever been dumped? Does that happen in the East End? I'm from Parkdale. I, it's not so common in Parkdale, but I heard like around Riverdale, Cabbage Town. Yeah? You know, it's like when you get dumped and, you know, you have to turn your ex-lover into an enemy. What a jerk, you know? And then you tell the story in a way that your friends will agree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you did that, you know? And then at nighttime, you rest your head on your pillow and you close your eyes. And you miss him. Or you miss her. Because in your heart, things are more complicated. 
you know, you also love that person. You've had some really connected times. And sometimes the level of your anger and the the intensity of turning them into an enemy is directly related. Just before enlightenment, a little bell goes off. (laughs) But if your ethics are not good, nothing happens. And, um... The the intensity of, um your hatred and your anger is actually related to the depth of your love for that person. And when you feel that you're lying your head on the pillow or you're still dreaming about them, oh my God, how can I keep dreaming about them? I hate them. And to realize that that's not complexity, it's actually interdependence. It's interbeing. It's the fact that that person's also you. There's nothing worse than, like, the superficial political rambling of, like, oh, George Bush, you know, Stephen Harper, you know, blah, blah. You know what comes next, you know, when someone has that face, you know. (laughs) But um, for somebody, George Bush is so lovable. For Stephen Harper's kids, you know, he's their dad. And so to be able to have a story that's complex enough that it can't capture somebody. It can't capture a person. And that's why we have to keep telling stories as a culture, is because they don't work. They help us along to a point, but because they frame something, they then set up a crisis. And then that crisis gets resolved by retelling the story in a more creative way. Some of you who may have um, uh, done any psychotherapy know this. You know, it's like, oh my God, am I going to tell this story again? <laughs> or it's like sometimes you ha- you go see a new therapist, and it's like, oh, I can't tell you this. I've been telling this story for hundred and fifty dollars an hour for ten years. You know, <laughs> and that's exactly the point. Is sometimes our stories get old, and when you have that feeling, don't tell it anymore. <laughs> You know, reimagine it because you are not a thing. You are not a frame that exists in space and time. You know, you're beginningless, you're fiction, you're frameless. You're just like a rhizome becoming and becoming, you're a becoming, you're unfathomable. For those of you who suffer from self-judgment, that, you know, to see the glasses you're wearing. Oh, now I have the self-judgment glasses on. But that's not the only thing I am. Now I'm a mother. You know, and this infant needs my body. I have to put my body there for him. But you're not just a mother so many things but sometimes out of fear we shrink just into one particular frame and then healing is not possible because the story needs to be reimagined and you're never going to be free of this internal storyteller 
it's healthy to have a storyteller. When you walk out into the street, you don't want to be one with a streetcar. <laughs> Do they have streetcars in the East End? <laughs> they have electricity in the East End? <laughs> Um, you want to have a story that that streetcar is moving fast, I should get out of the way, it's heavy, my toe's not, you know. So there's nothing wrong with a story, you know. The problem is when you don't see how the storyteller is operating. To add another dimension to this, though, sometimes we turn to the raw places where we're suffering and we tell so many stories about our suffering that we actually don't leave any room for healing. You know, we actually just, sometimes our stories about our difficulties actually prevent transformation, prevent healing. Just like our stories about our lover can sometimes be toxic for a relationship because they get stale. And then we say, oh, my lover is stale. But your lover's not stale. In the same way that George Bush is not one-dimensional. To see the glasses that you're wearing, the way you're constructing the story, and the fact that there's choice you have choice, but, and this is where technique kicks in, if you can't be still, if you can't find silence in yourself, then it's very hard to watch the storyteller operating without being hooked by the storyteller. And that's why we put these hours and days and years into sitting. and contemplating nonviolence and learning how to open up the body and actually feel something and to breathe your life because this is your life welcome this is it yeah and no matter what your theories are about what happens when you die you still have to live this life here and your actions in this life really matter. So we have to work with the tremendous momentum of reactivity we all have. And to be able to, from a place of stillness, watch the storyteller without having to act on the story. And to watch your story about somebody or about yourself, maybe pain arises and there's intense pain in your spine and your story is that pain is unbearable and you know um, you want out of it is it possible to just stop and see the attitude you're bringing to the pain oh look at the attitude here is that this is not acceptable and then you show up with your breathing and from stillness, you just watch how there's a really big gap between what you feel and what you think you need to do about what you feel. 
And that gap really matters because it's in that gap that you have choice. And without practice, it's very hard to hang out in that gap because everything about our culture is designed to close the gap and send you into the next door and the next relationship. David Foster Wallace. Again, please don't think that I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and mental effort. And if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her little child in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a nightmarish red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends on what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, will not consider possibilities that aren't pointless and annoying. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will be within your power to experience a crowded, loud, slow, consumer-hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars, compassion, love, the subsurface unity of all things. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. You get to consciously decide what is meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we know all this stuff already, it's been codified as myths, proverbs, clichés, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, 
you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings, because the world of men and money and, and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention, and awareness, and discipline, and effort, and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them, over and over, in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational. What it is, so far as I can see, is the truth with a whole lot of rhetorical bullshit paired away. Obviously, you can think of it whatever you wish. But please don't dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this is about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The, tap the capital T truth is about life before death. It is about making it to 30, or maybe 50, without wanting to shoot yourself in the head. It is about simple awareness, awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over. This is water. This is water. One of the ways we're most happy is when we're serving. And to be able to serve something or somebody um, means we have to really take in that person or that situation. But it's hard. It's hard to serve somebody when we're coming at it from a self-centered perspective. I think it's a interesting phase in spiritual practice, especially if you have a practice that involves stillness, to one day realize that almost all of your thoughts are about you. 
and that even most of your thoughts about others somehow are designed to create a you, a me. And uh, hopefully that's motivating. And so if we're really going to serve others and be of benefit to the rivers and the butterflies and the disappearing frogs and honeybees, then we have to learn how to work with the tendency in the mind to refer everything we're experiencing back to central command and to not see how you're equal. You're equal to the butterfly. You're equal to the frog. You are not more important than a frog. What happens for you when I say that? Self-cherishing, some righteous, but, but, but I'm bigger. And not to be naive and say humans are not going to leave their footprint on each other and on the forests and on the frogs and butterflies. But also to see how your perspective really shuts down or opens up through choice, the choice that you have. And just doing this with postmodern or post-postmodern philosophy is not enough. It's not enough just to know that there are multiple perspectives in a situation. But can you, in your body, shift? Can you be different things to different people? Different people for different people. So that you can serve yourself and serve others. Interdependence. It just isn't enough to have a mystical experience and to wake up to the intimacy of reality. It's not enough to have a moment of stillness where there is no language and no storytelling happening. That might be the thing that shakes you and that changes you forever. But we don't live in an ethical vacuum. And after that experience, you have to go back into your community. And in a way, this is the job of a teacher, of a guide, is to help you wake up and have experiences of unity and love, but then to challenge you on those situations so that you go back in your community and you express your realization. You show it. You act on it so that your life becomes art. Your life becomes a creative manifestation or expression of your path. So how are you going to express your wisdom? And one of the ways we begin skillfully, hopefully, 
is to be able to see that in every moment we can shift. We can shift the story. And in that moment of shifting, there's a moment of freedom, a moment of healing, a moment of transformation. Because what's being transformed? The Buddha calls this nirvana, which literally means uh, to extinguish. Well, what's being extinguished? Not your uniqueness and your blue eyes or your silver hair. What's being extinguished, what's being extinguished is the self that is separate from, is the storyteller. You see? But not to be naive and think the storyteller doesn't come back. I've met some people in my life who I think are fairly enlightened. And the only people I've ever met who don't have a storyteller are institutionalized. The storyteller is essential to be alive. The ego is so helpful. And sometimes it's not. And your practice is to be able to discern the difference. Stories of healing and transformation. Stories can be healing and transformative, and they can also shut things down. And so I hope what I've been able to begin to express before we open it up for uh, questions and more questions is that um, the core of helpful spiritual teachings is compassion, is the deep love that comes out of connectedness. When you are connected to what is alive, life is a really interesting and motivating place to be. When you're connected to what's alive in you. But when you're dominated by old stories that are so comfortable, things are not alive anymore. The body is sleeping, the heart is sleeping. And then your life is like a dream. And unfortunately, like most of our dreams, you're still the main character. And that's not interesting. But it's predictable. So it's safe. So what I'd like to do is just have a five-minute break and then um, open it up for discussion so we can debate and argue a little bit together. <laughs>